please take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn with me over to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. For those of you watching online, the manuscript is available for you there. Revelation chapter 17. The passage we read together in your hearing just a few moments ago, and now what we're going to do is read verse 14, which I think is one of the most significant passages in this entire section. And in understanding that, in understanding the spiritual warfare that is being brought forth here, and it will result ultimately in physical warfare upon the earth, to understand what it means to say that they are at war with the Lamb. And even this very moment, there are those who are at war with the Lamb. Anytime you get into the matter of spiritual warfare, and you understand what it means, as, they, as Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, the, the hail of fiery darts and using the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Anytime we're dealing with a matter like that, it is always a, a difficult time not only to preach but also to receive what's actually here in the Word of God. So as we read Revelation 17, 14 this morning, I would ask you to please earnestly pray even as I attempt to preach from this passage this morning. Revelation 17 and verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Shall we pray together? We magnify you for your remarkable, astounding, amazing graciousness, Lord, that has gripped so many hearts and gripped believers all through these centuries, gripped them with your graciousness and resulted in faithfulness. I praise you, dear Heavenly Father, that even as we look at this mysterious monstrosity of mystery Babylon today, that in all this darkness there is this tremendous shining light of the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Grant, dear Heavenly Father, today that we who follow him would demonstrate his faithfulness and show to a lost world that there is hope in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord no man comes unto the Father but by him. And Father, we're asking this day that you would draw precious souls to yourself. Jesus Christ said, no man can come except my Father which is in heaven draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said, the words that I give unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Grant, dear Heavenly Father, your spirit today as your word is preached and give us genuine life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, as the Apostle Paul was describing the movement 
in the societies of the world toward the Antichrist, he made this interesting remark in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and notice what he said in verse 7. The mystery of iniquity, that's sometimes translated the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Now remember, Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. If already at that time, the mystery of iniquity, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is associated with the coming of Antichrist. If 2,000 years ago, the mystery of iniquity was already at work at that time, then what does that say for our own day to this very moment in this very hour? It tells us that the mystery of iniquity is still working. That movement toward the Antichrist is alive and well among us today. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 17 and next week chapter 18, here we see, if you will, the culmination of this mystery of iniquity all across these ages. In Revelation 17 and 18, the ultimate embodiment, if you will, the ultimate manifestation of this mystery of iniquity in what is called Mystery Babylon the Great. How will this be dealt with? How will the Lord demonstrate his glory? Now, we have some really fascinating passages in Scripture where Satan comes out in every, with everything he has, he comes against the Lord. Certainly we see that in the temptation, the testing of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 4, and how the Lord Jesus used the scriptures to refute and turn aside all that Satan cast at him. Well, here is another place where Satan shows up in all his fury and, and the ultimate attempt, the ultimate manifestation of this mystery of iniquity. And it is fascinating to see how God's grace demonstrates itself. If you are wrestling today with the world, the flesh, and the devil, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, this wisdom of this world, which is earthly and sensual and devilish, if you're wrestling with that today, then take heart in this passage. Because this passage shows us that mighty as this Babylon the Great appears to be, it is actually a very puny power. It might look like a mighty, mysterious monstrosity, but it actually pales before the one who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, according to verse 14. And so the simple proposition, the simple thesis, if we had to take everything in this message today and boil it down to one sentence, here would be the one sentence. That this mysterious monstrosity, Mystery Babylon, this mysterious monstrosity will only serve to fulfill God's will and reveal that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's all it will really demonstrate. The book of the Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This mysterious monstrosity, mystery Babylon, 
The only thing that ultimately it will do is fulfill God's words to the letter and yet help us to see our precious Lord and Lamb as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If you were to take a kingdom such as the Antichrist and begin to try to study it, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all through the book of the Revelation, going here into Revelation 17 and 18, I have to tell you, sometimes it can feel just absolutely overwhelming. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way I felt as I was wrestling through Revelation 17 and 18, is how do you organize this? How do you, how do you put it all together? And ultimately, by reading and studying and praying, ultimately, I thought, well, there's at least these categories of what we see here. Categories of Satan's kingdom. And you can see them there listed with the references in your manuscript. But understand this. This is the ultimate manifestation of this mystery of iniquity that is already at work And what that means is that what we're going to see here in these kingdoms, this kingdom of the coming Antichrist, it's already at work today. In fact, we'll see it in some of the kingdoms of the past as we go on with this message this morning. Understanding that and seeing that clearly really helps us to understand how would we organize. And here's the way I chose to organize it this morning. Any kingdom, past or present, any kingdom in the future, and certainly the Antichrist kingdom, you could look at it in political terms. You could look at it in economic terms. You could look at it in religious terms. You could look at it in military terms. Now, obviously, there's some overlap in between those. In the manuscript that you see online, in the manuscript you have there in your hands, I listed the references for these for your own study so that you could go back and carefully think through what does this passage really teach about Antichrist kingdom. It describes the political beast. It also describes the woman, this adulterous Babylon. It tells us about this political beast that it's the kings of the earth and a world ruler that is coming. And in economic terms, especially in Revelation 18, which we'll get to next week, but even here in Revelation 17, you can see the materialism and the merchants. You can see the economic aspects of everything that is going on, all as part of this mystery Babylon the Great. Certainly in Revelation chapter 17, especially, you can see it in religious terms. When it uses the terms here for sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, he is thinking first and foremost of idolatry. Idolatry throughout the Old Testament is pictured as spiritual adultery, and you can see that as you study the Old Testament prophets. The idolatry that he's speaking of here, he pictures it in terms of fornication, of adultery, of immorality. And this is most certainly true with this woman who is described as an adulterous woman. And then, as we read a few moments ago, in military terms, it tells us in Revelation 17, really verses 13 and 14, that these kings of the earth will make war against the Lamb. There, it's not really just talking about spiritual warfare. He is also talking about the physical manifestation of a warfare as you and I would usually describe it. But you can see here that the kings of the earth will ultimately go up against the Lamb. 
And by the way, after they go against the Lamb, the Bible also tells us that they're going to turn against Mystery Babylon. Notice, if you will, then, in verses 1 through 6 again, this judgment of Babylon that is, and here's an important word, revealed. Can anyone figure this out on his own? Can anybody take this apart on her own and say, well, I can figure this all out? No, I'm, I'm, when you wrestle through these categories and there is so much that is mysterious and hidden and interwoven, it's really difficult, but by revelation. That is, by God's light, he tells us in Psalm 119, the entrance of thy word gives light. When we see that light, it really begins to come alive. So notice again what you find there, verses 1 through 6. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven bowls. Our translation says vials, bowls would probably be the better one. This is one of those angels who hurled the plagues, the final plagues against the earth. He talked with me saying, come unto me, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great whore, the great adulteress that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Again, it's talking about in a spiritual sense, idolatry. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Tells you later in this passage that she is drunk with the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the saints, those who refuse to turn their back on the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, who, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is a political entity. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup. Think about what that would look like in the vision. A golden cup that looks so splendid, but then look within the cup and you find it is full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth, and I saw this woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So obviously there is a great conflict that is going on here. And it will result in the death of some followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will result in the martyrdom of the saints. So when you think about this conflict, let's get into it and ask, what really is being pictured here? One of these angels, again, one of the ones that hurled the plague against the earth, he gives John this revelation that comes from the Lord. He's telling us about this mother of idolatry or this mother of spiritual adultery and sinful abominations of the earth and this golden cup that is full of abominations. By the way, next week we'll talk about this a little bit more, but when you get into Revelation chapter 18, it tells you that the leaders are going to use sorcery drugs. When you say sorcery drugs, what does that mean? The word sorcery here in this passage is the Greek word pharmakia, which is just like our word pharmacy. In other words, he is talking about the abuse of substances to create an altered reality in people, that they are going to control people by their sorcery drugs or magic spells to try to control them. And what they're going to do is enslave the souls of men. 
I would ask you to notice in the paper recently and in many online news articles how slavery, human slavery, is becoming more and more prominent in the continents of this world, on the continents of this world. So here we see that those who adore the Antichrist are really intent on living in leisurely folly instead of the fear of the Lord. It may be that in our own country right now, the very wealthy people are trying to open our borders to bring more people in in order to enslave them, in order to use them any way that they wish. That would be a symptom of what you would see in the ultimate mystery Babylon. But you have to understand, you have to see about this passage that that as gross as this seems, this mysterious monstrosity, it will still be overcome by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this entire passage tells you that this mysterious monstrosity, the only thing it will really serve to do is to demonstrate that God fulfills his words to the letter, that he fulfills them. And ultimately, this will reveal Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Down in verse 15, when this verse speaks of many waters, what is it speaking of? And you can see it down there in verse 15 in your scriptures. It's speaking of where this adulterous woman sits and and what are the waters? Well, the waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, what this is depicting is the idolatry of a worldwide religion, a worldwide religion. Now, How does that work with the present religions of this world? And the answer is probably somehow or other there is the attempt to bring them all together. That is, that which is false, those who would say, well, there are many roads to heaven. Ultimately, I'm sure Mystery Babylon will teach that. There are many roads to heaven. And what's the difficulty? You go to John chapter 14 and Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he made this comment, no man comes unto the Father but by me. So when you hear people say today, well, there are many roads to heaven, you need to think about this passage. Think about mystery Babylon and all that is being taught and depicted there and recognize this is the conflict that is even going on this very day. It tells us in this passage about the woman riding a beast, a political entity with seven heads and ten horns. As she ambles about, she is drunken with the blood of the martyrs of the saints. That's quite a picture, isn't it? But but she believes in herself. She exalts herself and says, I can, I can destroy these who are believers in the Lord Jesus. I can throw them aside and I can press on in all my iniquity. Ultimately, when you get to Revelation 17 and 18 and you try to put all of this together, by the way, there are some who would make a very strong distinction between Revelation 17 and 18. I believe that's an, that's an error, and you can see it if you look at the very last verse of Revelation chapter 17. Notice in Revelation 17, there are those who say, well, Revelation 17 is about a religion, but chapter 18 is about a city. But look at verse 18 of Revelation 17. He's telling, the angel is telling John, the woman which you saw is that great city. Now, granted, 
Revelation 17 goes on to talk about that city, but here's what verse 18 does for us. It brings it all together. So as you can see, the slide I put on the screen here, Mystery Babylon is both a system and a city. The woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So Babylon as a system and Babylon as a city, what's this really all about? Well, if you went up into the land of Shinar on the Fertile Crescent, went all the way up and around, you would come to the land there today, modern day Iraq and part of perhaps Iran, the land of Shinar, that's where they attempted to build the Tower of Babel. You can read about this in the lead up to it in Genesis chapter 10, but most especially in Genesis chapter 11, and read about this Tower of Babel that they put together. It was very likely something that you could see pictured today as a ziggurat. It was certainly a temple of some kind. It appears that what they were doing is using astrology and the various constellations to try to talk about the future or gain wisdom. But remember in Genesis chapter 11, they were all brought together, all brought together. They all had one language and they were all brought together around this religion. And by the way, what did the Lord do? Well, he gave them a difference in tongues at that point. He scrambled everything by giving them different languages. It's kind of interesting today with all of our translation software and everything we can use on the internet to see how there is this move toward once again bringing it all together. What did the Lord do at the Tower of Babel? He scrambled the languages. And if you ask, what was that really about at the Tower of Babel? Well, ultimately, it was about humanism. Now, what is, what is humanism? Humanism is the belief that man is God. Man is God. That has come out many times recently. There have even been Supreme Court cases that ruled that humanism is, in fact, a religion. But remember, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden... The Satan, the tempter, the snake, he said to Adam and Eve, you shall be as gods. It's one of the oldest lies, if not the oldest lie in the entire Bible. So they're falling for this. Now, when you look at this, think about the the connections here. You see in Revelation 17 that it's speaking of a religious system. In Revelation 18, it's it's a rebellious city that he has in mind. This religious system is described as an adulterous or a whore full of abominations, chapter 17 and verse 5. The rebellious city is, if you go back and read Revelation 18 in preparation for next Sunday's message, you'll see it's the haunt of demons. It's a, it's a lar- very large and massive city that is being described that is the haunt of demons. And throughout, there are people who are greedy for power. They're greedy for treasure. And ultimately, that will be destroyed. But there is also an interesting contrast between the religious system and this rebellious city. According to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 16, ultimately, the kings of the earth will rise up to throw aside, to thrust aside the religious system. And so it is actually human beings who overthrow Babylon, the religious system. Revelation chapter 18, it's very plain that it is God himself through his angels 
who overthrows the rebellious city. So as you think about the way this is all brought together here, think about the system and the city as we press on and think about what it is that the woman is doing. It is said that she is riding this beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you look at it carefully, it's not hard to figure out who is this angel talking about when he talks about these seven heads and the ten horns. Look, if you will, down uh, beginning in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Okay, think about this as you, as you look at verse 3. The beast, who's the beast? Pastor Rod preached on this a while back. Apparently, one of the things that the Antichrist is going to try to do to gain trust in himself, to gain credibility for himself, is he's going to go through something that looks like a resurrection. I have seen some who said he's actually going to die and then be brought forth alive as the embodiment of Satan. And I can see with passages like this, others have said, no, it was a complete fake from the beginning. They would point to passages in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that says he's doing this all by deceit. He's doing this all by trickery, by deceivableness. In any case, what's going to happen is those who are on the earth at the time will just admire and adore the beast. Can you see why? If they believe that he brought himself back forth from death, they believe that they could they could bring uh, that he could bring them back from death, and so they would be willing to fight for him. They would be willing to do anything for him because, after all, if he brought himself back from the dead, he could bring me back from the dead as well. It tells you about this beast that it has these names upon him, names of blasphemy. It describes it in the first uh, six verses there. But those who adore and worship and trust in the beast are actually giving evidence of something. Do you see it there? It says, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is and is not and yet is. So, Satan here, I should say, the Antichrist is, is the embodiment, the, the one human embodiment of all this. But it's described as a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Look, if you will, in verses 10 and 11. There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. Now, this can get really, really confusing if we're not careful. Let's go back and look at it carefully. It tells us here in verses 9 through 12 that the seven heads represent seven mountains, and these are depicting seven kingdoms. And so he says that there are seven kings, five are fallen. What is he referring there to? He is referring to those kingdoms that have passed on. He is referring, first of all, to the kingdom of Egypt to the south. And then Assyria with its capital as Nineveh. Right after Assyria was Babylon. Babylon was overcome by the Medo-Persians. Ultimately, they were overcome by Alexander the Great coming from Greece. And in John's day, the big ruling empire was, of course, Rome. 
Now, this takes some good deal of study, and Pastor Rod and I tried to labor through this when we went through the book of Daniel. But here you have one, two, three, four, five, six that are listed on the screen. What are the seventh and what are the eighth kingdoms? And I noted in your notes there that many believe that the seventh kingdom will be a revived Roman Empire. I don't have in this message time to go through and really labor on that point, but I did give you footnotes where both Pastor Rod and I both tried to labor as we worked through the book of Daniel to demonstrate that that is true, that this coming kingdom is ultimately a a revived Roman Empire of some sort. And ultimately, it tells you in this passage that this eighth kingdom is of the seven. And then one of the things that means is that the Antichrist will ultimately take over and it will be his kingdom, sort of a new way of doing everything. He will be the, the new recognized one. But it's very important to notice that he is doomed to go into perdition in the lake of fire. The ten horns, you say, when it says ten horns here, the best guesses I've seen are they represent ten geographic geographic places around the earth, ten geographical divisions. Those of you who are of any age and have been in church for years remember back years ago when they talked about this as being probably the, the economic union or European economic union. And then the problem was that there were more than 10 of them. And so then that caused everybody to say, well, maybe it's not the European Union. I think a better guess is probably if it's going to be a worldwide government, it's probably 10 geographical places around the earth. Everything in the message to this point has been teaching. Now I'd like to preach to you from this passage. So there's a sense in which Everything said to this point has been an introduction. Go in your manuscripts, if you will, there, and notice when it it raises the question in bold, since biblical prophecy is true, what should we do? Another way of asking that, especially with this text in mind, is since biblical prophecy is so, that is, it is real, it is true, since biblical prophecy is so, what is it that you and I should know? And you say, why do you say it that way? Well, remember in Romans chapter 6, as the Apostle Paul was talking about this, he used those verbs knowing and reckoning and yielding. Knowing, what is it that we know? What is it that we are confident of? He used the word reckoning, which we could translate it as uh, considering or computing. He talked about the idea that we ought to take what we know and then begin to work it into our minds and apply it, and then ultimately to yield ourselves to it. What is it today that you and I should know and reckon and yield about this passage? And you can see it there listed in your notes. Go all the way forward to Revelation 17, verse 17, and this much just jumps out at us. That this monstrosity of mystery Babylon the great will fulfill God's will demonstrating his sovereign control over the kingdoms. Would you turn once again over to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17 and look at it carefully. These these words would be worth memorizing as you wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the wisdom of this world that is earthly, sensual, devilish. This would be very helpful to remember and to know, verse 17, 
God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. Who is the main character of Revelation chapter 17? It is God himself. And God himself is allowing all these things and working out all these things for his great namesake, for his great glory, to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. Again, verse 17. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast. Remember a few moments ago, we were talking about this, about the seventh kingdom and going into the eighth kingdom, and the eighth is of the seven. This is exactly what's happening here. They are giving their kingdom unto the beast. Don't miss the last phrase of verse 17. Until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Believer, here's the confidence you have today. You know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. This is food for your faith. God's word will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled to the ultimate extent, and everything that he promises, he is going to do. So don't cower. Don't be fearful under this mysterious Babylon the Great, this mysterious monstrosity. This is all proving exactly what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar when he said, until you know that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men and he will put over it whomever he will, even the basest of men, which certainly seems to be the case here with Mystery Babylon. Every new political and religious controversy that you are hearing about You should take every one of those to the word of God in order to grow your faith, in order to establish your faith, because God is fulfilling his will. Look, he was doing this already in the mystery of iniquity. He was doing it all the way back in Egypt. He was doing it in Assyria. He was doing it in Babylon. He was doing this in Medo-Persia. He was doing this in Greece. All these things, even though there is this mystery of iniquity that is all about us, God is fulfilling his purposes. He is demonstrating who he is, and he is pointing us toward Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a second one, and this goes right to verse 14. In fact, let's spend the rest of the message now just on verse 14, shall we? Secondly, we can see here, here's something that since biblical prophecy is so, here's what we should know, that secondly, Mystery, Babylon, Babylon the Great, and the political beast upon which she rides will make war against the Lamb. Have they been making war against the Lamb? Right after this message is concluded, we'll be singing together Psalm 2 to remind ourselves, yep, that's exactly what's going on. Why do the nations rage? Why do they imagine the vain thing that's been going on? But mystery Babylon in in all of its aspects and the political beast upon which she rides will make war against the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be defeated by him. You and I can take confidence in this. Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Think about the words here. These shall make war with the lamb. Why does the Bible here refer to Jesus as the lamb? Well, it takes us all the way back to the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse 29, when he pointed to Jesus Christ and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
your friend, take heart in this this morning. If you are listening to this message, if you're listening to this message online, you have to wrestle with this question. How do I deal with my personal evil? Every single one of us knows about his or her personal evil. How do I overcome my personal evil? And that's exactly why Jesus Christ came to this earth. He came to this earth. Jesus Christ came to this earth to overcome your personal evil. Well, how did he do that? Well, during his earthly life, he lived a perfect life, the perfect life, a spotless lamb who was offered ultimately for you. He lived a life without blemish, without spot. He did that to overcome your personal evil. He did it to glorify his heavenly father, and he did it for you. He did it for your sins. He did it for my sins. He went to that cross of Calvary, and there he offered himself in exchange for your personal evil. That is, he took all your personal sins, all your personal evil, all of those boulders of bitterness, all those landslides of lust, all those times, the evil in your life, he took it upon himself. He became sin for us. And he did so in order that he might exchange his perfect righteousness with our evil and give us his righteousness. Those who trust Jesus Christ actually wear the robe of his righteousness. This is a tremendous story in the Gospels that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he gave himself for you and he died, but he rose again. He rose again to demonstrate that he had power over sin and death and hell. And so as you wrestle today with your personal evil and you think about the choices you've made and you think about your mistakes and you think about the sin and you think about all the, here's why Jesus Christ came. He came to cleanse your conscience, to purify you. He did so by his amazing grace, overcoming sin and death and even hell itself. And what did he say about himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Mystery Babylon, they're going to tell you, oh, there's, there's many roads. Oh, yeah, sure, there's, there's many roads that lead to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said there's one way, that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. This kind of teaching and preaching angers this world who says, no, no, you know, it, it's all about just being religious. It's not. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you embraced him by faith? He is, the lamb is, the Lord of lords and king of kings who will come to rule this world with a rod of iron, as we will be singing in just a few moments from Psalm 2. And then perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of this entire passage, notice what it says about Christ followers. Those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. They are called and chosen and faithful. This passage is alluding, I believe, to two passages in Scripture. Matthew chapter 22, a parable that's there. And then, of course, Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. 
Let's talk about that parable in Matthew chapter 22 for a moment. It's the parable here of the wedding feast. And here is a king who says, my son is going to get married. I want to invite these guests to come in to the marriage of my son. Now, when Pastor Rod and I get to the marriage supper of the lamb coming up in just uh, two or three weeks, we may refer back to this passage. But think about this king here as a parable. Jesus said, the king is inviting all these guests to come to the wedding of his son. And what's the problem? They won't come. They won't come. They refuse. Nothing to do with your wedding of your son. I want nothing. And the king as He sees them as rebels. The passage tells you he destroys them. He says, all right, if you're rebels against my kingship, then I'll destroy you. And he says to his servants, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want you to invite others. Go out in the highways and hedges. I mean, compel, tell others. You're invited to the wedding of the king's son. Go out and just invite them in. And when he issues that invitation, all kinds of people respond. Now, it was very common at the time when you were a wealthy king or a wealthy man, you would actually give wedding garments to all of those who would attend the wedding. Mothers who have worked through this for the brides and tried to come up with all the bridesmaids' dresses and all the tuxedos, think about that. Think about what it would be like to have to give a wedding garment to everybody who came. But that really did cost a fortune to do. But that was very common at the time because the kings had that. And it was very likely, I would imagine, they gave them those wedding garments and they could remember the wedding that they went to for years to come. As that parable goes on, it tells you that here they were all arrayed in their finery and the king comes in and then he notices one man and that one man is not wearing a wedding garment. And he's basically saying to him, excuse me, what, what are you doing here without wearing the wedding garment? And the man became very faithful. You understand why the king was upset? Here came in this interloper. Here came in this man who said, well, I'm going to accept the king's invitation. But he wanted to go to the wedding on his terms instead of the king's terms. That's a very insightful passage for you and me. It may be that you hear the gospel call. It may be that you understand, I need to be saved. I need to come to the Lord. But then, in a very deceptive manner, you try to come to the Lord on your own terms. Rather than wearing the robes of his righteousness, you are saying to yourself, well, look, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I can earn it. You read that passage in Matthew chapter 22 very carefully, and here's what you find out. That king treats that interloper in the very same way that he treated those who refused. It says he will be bound and cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's terrifying. It could be that there are those who profess that they believe. And you say, well, look, I prayed a prayer. I gave a testimony. I profess that I believe. All you have to do is go read Acts chapter 8 about a man named Simon, who it says, the scripture now says, he believed and was baptized. And then he tried to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the apostles said to him. They said, you have no portion with us. You have no portion with us and you are in the gall of bitterness. What he's saying, what they're saying to this man is you're lost. 
You, I mean, you really don't know the Lord. That's the first passage that is in mind here, and Jesus brought it home with these words in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what does he mean by that? Many are called. He invited this group over here. They rebelled. He invited this group over here, but at least one man wouldn't wear the wedding garment. How do you make a distinction between being called and being chosen? And here's part of the answer from Matthew chapter 22. Those who are chosen respond to God on his terms, not their own terms. They don't try to make it up as they go along. They don't try to say, well, look, I'm I'm sure I can live a perfectly good life and I can get to heaven. No, Jesus says, no, no, it's not that way at all. Many are called, but few are chosen, and that chosenness is really what demonstrates their faithfulness. They are demonstrating, I really have been gripped by grace. I really have come to the Lord on his terms. The other passage is Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. And when you see in Romans 8, 30, here's the way it says it in verses 30 through 32. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I want you to go back in your passage in Revelation chapter 17 just for a moment and look again at verse 8. What is true of those who will not receive the invitation or those who say, I'll try to get to God on my own terms? Look what it says. Their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. There is the real problem. Now, how does all of this work together? I mean, how is it that the Lord brings all these things together? He calls. How does he call? He calls through the gospel. Did you hear the gospel call just a few moments ago when I told you about Jesus Christ and I told you what he will deal, how he will deal with your personal evil? He is calling you. He is calling you even now to come to him. How will you demonstrate that you are among the chosen. Well, you'll come to the Lord on his terms. And by the way, when you do, you will be demonstrating that God chose you before the foundation of the world. You will be demonstrating God's graciousness in your faithfulness. And the third word that's used there is faithfulness. As you pray for each other this week, would you pray this way? that each and every one of us would be gripped by God's graciousness and demonstrate real faithfulness. This is not only the way that the lamb is overcoming, it's the way that we are overcoming through the lamb. In everything this world throws at us, this mysterious monstrosity we're talking about here, it's only going to fulfill God's will. It's only going to show and demonstrate who God is in all of his glory. So today, may I make the appeal to you. In the grip of his grace, will you now run the race Will you recognize the spiritual warfare going on all around us and in the grip of his graciousness demonstrate faithfulness and demonstrate you really are a believer in the King of kings and Lord of lords? 
Shall we pray together? Father, how we praise you for such a tremendous passage about spiritual warfare that really helps us to understand what is going on around us even this very hour. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have worked, even when there was the mystery of iniquity, even in Egypt, even working against people like Moses. Yet, Lord, you have demonstrated to us your prevailing and persevering grace. Grant, dear Heavenly Father, that each and every one of us would be victorious and be able to say, I am a worshiper, I am a follower of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.